All that was hopefully so it doesn't rustle when I'm talking. Does <laughs> this sound good? Yeah. These are all my notes for today. Do you think I can get, a, get through them all? <laughs> Probably not. Good to see you're all still here. That is a sign of great success. You haven't run out of here screaming yet. Though I have heard rumors of a few people taking to the woods for a while. One of my favorite things to do is to talk about the Buddha Dharma. We teachers like it, too. We sometimes spend time during our mealtimes talking about dharma. We uh, enjoy that. I think just because it's been such a source of freedom for all of us. And yet, uh, it hasn't been an easy ride for any of us, as far as I know. Correct me if I'm wrong, teachers. (laughs) So... Uh, I'm guessing that for many of you, most of you, it hasn't been an easy ride either. Sometimes we have periods in our practice where it is actually joyful and, and lots of ease. So if you are having such a period, it doesn't mean that there's something going wrong. Um, but we tend to, in the talks, uh, talk about the challenges because that's um, where people often need support. This being human is uh, such a wild ride. We live in a, in a wild, wild universe. The more that we get uh, quiet in meditation, there's one way that we get steadier, but there's another way. What gets steady is our attention, but there's another way that we see how clearly we live in this world of incessant change. That's what I mean when I say it's wild. You only have to look at one of your meditation periods to see that. What you go through in half hour, 45 minutes, the, all the changes that the, in the body, the mind, the heart. So right here in this lab, we see this lab, which is our own heart, body, mind. We see the nature of this world, that it's a world of incessant change. And then looking outwards, we see that too, Right? Just in a single day, the weather changes. The climate changes. (laughs) Governments change. Things change. And um, the Buddha said that this fundamental truth about change is, uh, is the source of our challenges with life, or is the source of dukkha. Dukkha means suffering or unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, um, that first noble truth. That as humans, we deeply crave security. We want things to be, uh, we want things to be the way we want them to be. (laughs) We want things to be um, 
under our control, our management. And this kind of conflicts with this world of wild, um, incessant change. And so this, we have this conundrum, this existential dilemma as humans. Of like, how do we live in this world of so much change and not struggle so much? How do we be open-hearted and open-minded live uh, with a vibrant connectedness to ourselves and to the world around us, which means open. How do we live open in a wild world? That's what we're trying to work out. And there's five... um, energies are five qualities of heart and mind that um, are often called hindrances. Shelley mentioned them this morning. Um, I like to call them challenges or even protections. I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's these five challenges that come up in meditation that are said to um, obscure our ability to see this world clearly. I think they protect us from seeing this world clearly. And I like to use the word protection because sometimes if we call them hindrances, we get into this like battle with them, like they're bad and have to get rid of them. But protections, we can start to maybe see them as energies we just learn to work with. And those five are sense, desire, and aversion. That's one pair. Sense, desire, or wanting, any form of wanting. Aversion, not wanting. So wanting, not wanting. Sleepiness, restlessness, kind of another pair, energy pair. Sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. So sense, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. I'm going to talk about all five of them (laughs) briefly. I um, have a a, a partner that actually we we got married a year ago after 23 years together. (laughs) I got married at 61 for the first time. Wild. Anyway, I I like to talk with him about practice because he's done a little bit, but it's not his thing, really. Um, He's done several, like, 10-day retreats here, but... but, uh, So he knows what what I'm talking about, but he has a kind of beginner's or fresh mind about it. So one time I told him I was going to talk about the hindrances, and he was like, oh, good. And I'm like, oh, good? And most people don't like so much to hear about the hindrances. And he said, well... For me, it was a relief to hear that this is acceptable, predictable, and unremarkable. That the hindrances are acceptable, predictable, and unremarkable. And I love that way of framing them. He said, I'm happy they have a noble place in this tradition. So we tend to um, find them unacceptable, 
And we tend to find them, um, to take them personally and to feel like if they're present, there's some reflection on who we are and whether we're a capable meditator. But actually, they're predictable. They will arise. They have arisen. If you're really lucky, you'll get what we call a multiple hindrance attack, (laughs) where you can get all five of them. At the same time, <laughs> you're sitting here and, and uh, uh, let's say you start feeling um, fear. You don't like fear, so you're thinking, oh, wow, you know, I really would rather not be here. I'd rather be at the beach. Look how nice it is. So you got a virgin desire. And then you get all restless, right? And you're just thinking all over the place. And then you wear yourself out and you fall asleep. And then you have a lot of doubt. You're like, I don't think I can do this. Like, who could do this? It doesn't work. There, multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> we also tend to have our favorites. We tend to have one or two that we specialize in. And so you may already know what your specialties are. Um, if you don't, you will very well know by the end of the retreat. Um, which ones come up for you more? And so maybe when you listen to the talk, um, it's kind of a lot of information. Maybe you can just kind of bookmark the ones that are more challenging for you and um, not try to kind of remember it all. So in the Satipatthana Sutra that uh, Shelley mentioned, the four foundations of mindfulness, the first one is the body uh, that we are emphasizing today. The fourth one is, um, we'll get to the second and third, don't worry. Actually, this one is somewhat about the third, mind states. And the fourth one is um, really about our understanding of, of how these... Um, how the teachings come together, and the hindrances are listed in this fourth one. And with them, we're given a number of tasks. And the tasks are to know when it's present, to know when it's not present, which is interesting because we tend to focus on when it's present. So no one sense desire is present. No one sense desire is not present. Know what helps a sense desire um, dissipate, lose its power. Those are the ones we're mostly going to focus on here. And then there's two other tasks. Notice what encourages the rising of sense-desire and notice what discourages the rising of sense-desire. So it's pretty detailed. You get the idea that we are meant to know these energies intimately. And if we sit here and try to get rid of them right away, we're not going to know them intimately. We want to turn towards them and um, understand what, what, what's going on here. How does this work? How does this unfold? How do I get stuck in it? How can I get unstuck? But through the knowing of it. So that'll be an emphasis in the talk. So it is important not to take the um, hindrances personally, because if you take them personally, 
practice is going to be a long series of failures. <laughs> you, you are going to get discouraged because, like I said, they're predictable. They'll come up. We'll start to feel that we're unworthy or incapable. But we can bring in a kind of lightness that sees these energies, understands perhaps how they kind of protect us. And um, we can even get kind of light around them. Last night, um, we had crackers with soup, right? I didn't want crackers. I wanted bread. (laughs) so I'm like how can I get some bread right and so I go and first look in the refrigerator in the kitchen no bread go in the staff dining room I'm looking like where bread used to be kept before the pandemic (laughs) no bread and so I'm looking I'm looking around the staff dining room for bread and part of me knows that there is no bread in the staff dining room (laughs) But I still want bread. So I, I kind of even looked a couple places twice, right? Um, some of you are probably thinking, like, what has she learned in 40 years of practice if she wants so much bread? But what I learned was, um, or what I have learned was, that I was kind of interested in this whole process. The whole time it was happening, there was this mindfulness of my relationship to wanting bread and what I was doing because I wanted bread. And um, I actually found it a little bit funny that, that some part of my mind thought if I just looked hard enough, I was going to find some bread. <laughs> when it was obvious there was no bread. And so then I went out and I told my colleagues about it because I thought it was so funny. I said, there's so much delusion in, in wanting, and there is. Wanting is full of delusion, right? So we had a good laugh about it. So that's what I've learned in 40 years, is that I don't have to take wanting so seriously. And, I don't, and, it, and, it, and it's more, you could say it's more transparent, it's not so opaque, when we haven't practiced as much, it's very, it's, it's dense. When we want, it's dense. We can't see through it, right? I could see through it. I was still looking for bread, but, but, but the, the, the wanting was um, not so dense. And I didn't take it so personally. I wouldn't be telling you guys about it if I took it personally, because I would be embarrassed. But I'm not, because it's just desire. Since desire, it arises. And so that illustrates, you could say, a kind of mindfulness and curiosity and um, an increasing lightness with which we can meet these energies. Turning towards them with mindfulness. Mindfulness is our best hope with all five of them. It starts to give us some space to be able to see them clearly, to be able to work with them, um, for them not to be so um, opaque and so uh, overwhelming for us.
said I call them protections because what I've noticed with these energies, these five, is that they do kind of cloud us from the full wildness of this world. So with desire, as I said, desire protects us because it tries to convince us that if we get what we want, we're going to be happy. And it protects us from the truth that that's not actually going to make us happy, that getting what we want is not what makes us happy. Certainly there's some pleasure in getting what we want, and it makes sense to, to go for what we want to a certain extent, right? I mean, that's part of life, but it's how you hold the desire. And if we put all of our energy into the fact that, uh, into thinking that if we get what we want, we're going to be happy, what do we do when the world's wild and it doesn't cooperate with what we want? So it's best to cultivate um, other sources of happiness also. Aversion has a secret desire that we can control unpleasantness by hating it. <laughs> we can make what we don't like go away if we just don't like it enough. I know on the surface what I'm saying. This is like one level under the surface. This isn't the conscious story. This is the under the surface story. Somebody's making some sound in the meditation hall and the mind is like, wow, wow. You know, it it gets tight and it wants it it to stop. And it's like, oh, can't I make it stop? (laughs) No. So aversion, so aversion tries to protect us from the truth that sometimes we're just going to have to be with unpleasantness. Sleepiness protects us by dulling us out. Restlessness protects us by a smokescreen. Restlessness is all over the place. You can't. And doubt protects us by pulling back. When there's a lot of doubt, we pull back. We don't want to see. We don't want to investigate. We pull back. This isn't the classical way that they're looked at, but this is just something that I've um, kind of noticed myself. And and I kind of appreciate, there's a way that I appreciate, you could say they're defenses, and I appreciate our defenses. We're not trying to knock them out of the ballpark. We're trying to walk alongside them. And as we strengthen in practice, as we strengthen the qualities of love, compassion, equanimity, stability, calm, joy, as we strengthen all of these qualities, then our defenses, we don't need them quite as much. They can soften. We don't have. So, so there's this kind of dual thing going on in practice. We're working with these challenging energies. The afflictive mind states are called, and they are afflictive. They're, they, they're turbulent, right? Working with how do we um, not be overwhelmed by these frightened of them, taken over by them. And then on the other hand, we're strengthening these other qualities 
the beneficial, helpful qualities. Kind of doing both. Both are work together. All right. How's my timing? Not good. <laughs> As we learn to work with these challenges, um, we build confidence and we build a kind of fearlessness. Remember, I remember in the Q&A, I think it was the other day, I said that maybe all of practice is learning not to be afraid of ourselves or not to be afraid of life. We, we, we grow in the confidence that we can deal with whatever comes our way. And when we have that confidence, then we can rest. Then we don't have to make the world, um, we don't have to demand that the world be any particular way. We still live our lives and try to create security for ourselves and, and um, a good life. Minus the demand that life be how we want it to be so that uh, we feel safe. It's an unconditional happiness that Chaz mentioned the other day. And it's a long-term process, your long-term project. You're probably not going to finish this week, so relax. (laughs) No hurry. All right, just a few words about each one. And I think, well, before I talk about each one, I want to talk about, uh, what are these called? Um, uh, Spacing on the word. But um, there's this word that people often use as a way to bring mindfulness to challenging, especially challenging mind states like these five. And it's RAIN, R-A-I-N. Many of you have probably heard of this acronym. That's what it is, acronym. Uh, This acronym was... uh, created by my teacher, Michelle McDonald, many years ago. It's been, now it's in wide use. But it helps us kind of have a framework for how we can work with the mindfulness of these protections. RAIN is, for, so R is recognition, recognize. Even you can name, oh, desire is present. A is allow. Or sometimes people use acceptance, but some people don't like that word. Allow, make room for. I, interest or investigation, move closer, what's really going on. N, non-identification. Some people use, some people have popularized nurture, but the original is non-identification. Non-identification is that lightness that I was talking about, the not taking it personally. The understanding that it's just nature. It's just causes and conditions coming together. It's human. Probably seven other billion human beings are also experiencing this. That's non-identification. So we can use this, our recognize, allow, investigate, non-identification. 
sense desires. So sense desires, everything from craving, wanting, addictions, every form of wanting, um, lust. Uh, it's not my specialty. Aversion is my specialty. I could give you a longer list for aversion. We have a form of um, sense desire and retreat we call Vipassana romance. Perhaps you've experienced that. That's when um, you... There's, a, there's another yogi, and you're sure that they are your soulmate. <laughs> Here on this retreat, your soulmate has shown up, and uh, uh, we call those VRs, the passing romance. I had one on my first retreat, my first long retreat, and uh, it was just conveniently the guy sitting next to me. and I had us married and having kids and the whole business I am aware that for guys sometimes a Vipassana romance has a different Um, (laughs) storyline but anyway you're making it all up just so you know (laughs) it's important to remember that You know, in our world, people believe that wanting is actually um, a good thing. McDonald's once had this thing called McRibs. I don't know if they made it very far, but the tagline was the simple joy of obsession. (laughs) I'm like, hello? (laughs) And for a while, Honda had something. It was crave.honda.org. <laughs> oh, I could go on and on. <laughs> but here we take this revolutionary stance that, that actually when you look at wanting closely, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a limited heart. It's a bound heart. And we want to learn how to um, see how that energy is and the stories it tells us and um, not be controlled by it. Having the space to decide some desires are are worth pursuing and some aren't, but having the space to be able to discern that. (laughs) One time I I, I teach out west sometimes and um, I used to teach at this place where I would get there a, a day early, and with the staff, we would make brownies um, the next day for the yogis and, and ourselves, of course. Um, and these are really good. They were Giardelli brownies, if you've ever had those. And um, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. If there's something that I crave, that would be it, sweets. And um, so one day I was going to take some brownies back to my hut, my little house, and eat them later. But by the time I got to my house, I'd already eaten the brownie. <laughs> and I was like, damn, I've been bested by a brownie. <laughs> and I'm like, tomorrow, I'm going to do that with mindfulness. So the next day, I get my brownie. I'm walking with it. And I can feel the craving for this brownie like rising, right? And I'm watching this craving. And the storyline is like, if you eat that brownie, you're going to be happy. <laughs> And if you don't eat that brownie, you're going to (laughs) die. 
really, that's what it, like, that's what was underneath it all, right? And so I would watch this energy, it would go up, 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 peak, and then it would go down. The craving would, you know, and then it would go up, 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 the craving would go up, 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 mindful, 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 and it would go down. And I made it all the way to the hut without eating the brownie. Yes. (laughs) But you know what? It was, it's empowering to do that. You know, it's empowering to to bring mindfulness to these experiences and and increase the flexibility and choice in our own hearts, our own minds. Someday I'll tell you about dark chocolate-covered almonds, but we don't have time today for them. I think we should probably move on. Yeah. So we just notice the difference between um, being lost in desire, and then we notice um, what happens when we are mindful of it. So that's what the brownie story, right? Lost in desire, controlled by it. Um, Not any choice. Mindful of desire. More choice, more flexibility, more freedom, really, right? So, the second one, aversion. Aversion is one of my specialties. I feel like the first 10 years of my meditation practice that basically what I remember experiencing is aversion. And sleepiness, that that was my other favorite. Um, Like... I must have had times when I wanted something, but I don't remember them because I was so overwhelmed with aversion. So aversions, all the forms of not wanting, um, ill will, anger, fear, sadness, judgment. One time in my practice, I, I decided to get curious about how many kinds of fear I experienced in my practice. I came up with 24 that I practiced with. And after I finished with fear, then I moved on to anger. And how many kinds of anger I experienced in my practice. And interestingly, there was also 24 kinds of anger. I have become a connoisseur of fear and anger. So again, it's this mindfulness that gives us um, some freedom, learning how to hold these energies, seeing their impermanent nature, that they arise and pass away, seeing the crazy stories um, beneath aversion. The judgments, this is a big one, right? Judging, judging others, judging ourselves. Wow, the things we'll believe. <laughs> the mind is shameless. But we learn to, 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 again, hold it um, without getting lost in it. Sometimes we can even play with aversive mind states. On my retreat last fall, every morning I would chant. I did a lot of chanting in the morning. And... Um, one time at, at my early morning chanting, a leaf blower started outside, and I'm not a big fan of leaf blowers. And uh, 
I very much disliked them, actually. And um, so the, the, the temptation was for aversion to arise. Unpleasant, hate it, wanted to go away. But I had some mindfulness, and um, I started chanting the tone with the, the that um, join the tone of the leaf blowers <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> so it's like I could play with this tendency towards aversion and choose something freer um, to do. I didn't have to be dominated by it. The Tibetan teacher Anand Thupten says, freedom is the end of whining. <laughs> I like that. (laughs) Aversion is all about whining, not liking things. There's a Buddhist story where a a male disciple wants to know how to find peace, so he approaches this female master named Sono. And she instructs him, whenever anything happens, to say, thanks for everything, I have no complaints whatsoever. This is a good practice for aversive types. Thanks for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. So we start to learn to, to, to accommodate unpleasantness, that we can tolerate it, that it's okay, that we don't have to try to protect ourselves from it. Moving right along. Okay, sleepiness and restlessness. So we've been hearing rumors that some of you have been sleepy. And some of you have been restless. These are... um, there's, There's different reasons for these two energies. Sometimes it's just energy. Like you drank too much coffee... Restlessness. You slept poorly last night. Sleep, sleepiness. Um, we have human bodies. They don't function at peak energy, twenty four seven. Contrary to what our culture might think they should do. Many of you will notice like peaks and troughs in energy during the day. So it's just part of having a human body. I can beat any of you in sleepiness. Not now, but in my early practice. Almost every sitting, I would fall asleep 25 minutes into the period, about pretty much around 25 minutes. And when I look back, on some level, I think that was just about all, about as much reality as I was interested in. <laughs> For us, aversive, those who um, have a lot of aversion, life is pretty rough. <laughs> And so I think at 25 minutes, my mind was like, okay, I think we're done for now. <laughs> and I would uh, fall asleep. I hated it. I judged myself. I did all of that. But at a certain point, I learned to make peace with it. And the truth of the matter is, if you count the walking periods too, I was awake most of the time. And if you count the whole day, it's okay if you fall asleep for a little while. I struggled with so much sleepiness, especially in the evenings. I, I'm, I'm a morning person. I was on one retreat with this Burmese master, Sayadaw Upandita, big, well-known, tough Burmese master. 
And I used to fall asleep during all his Dharma talks because, first of all, they're half in Burmese, which I don't understand. So that was hard to keep my attention right. And also, I just fall asleep most Dharma talks that are in the evening. He gave a Dharma talk on yogis who fall asleep during Dharma talks (laughs) and how they don't have any Dharma energy. I fell asleep (laughs) during that talk. (laughs) So I think I can beat any of you guys (laughs) in sleepiness. (laughs) But what happened at a certain point in my practice is now I don't get sleepy at all. I'm much more likely to be restless. And for those of you who are sleepy, count your blessings. Because restlessness is worse. (laughs) restlessness um, I think is more painful sleepiness isn't so painful it's just that we think we're bad yogis Um, restlessness is that feeling like you might die if you don't get out of the hall or you know restlessness you're saying ring the bell ring the bell (laughs) the bell I've been there. I'm sure everybody up here has been there, right? You're sitting in the hall and you're like, they fell asleep. I'm sure at least two hours have passed. Restlessness, yeah, yeah. I liked what um, Shelley said this morning about the wide pasture. I find that when there's restlessness, I put my awareness somewhere around here. And anxiety, and anxiety and restlessness go together. So I put my energy, my awareness somewhere around here, and I say to the restlessness or the anxiety, I say, okay, I'm here, honey. Do whatever you want. And just watch the ping pong ball go this way and that way, and you can do that. You can hold restlessness. It's not so pleasant. We learn to tolerate the unpleasantness of it, but it's just energy. And we can try things like counting breaths. You know, that can be helpful if there's a lot of restlessness, counting breaths. Um, But as a last resort, we can try mindfulness of restlessness. It's like, oh yeah, this is what restlessness is like. Same with sleepiness. This is what sleepiness is like. We can try opening our eyes, stand up, um, Note in our breath, like if we're being with an anchor, use that little note like in, out, or body sitting, hands touching, sometimes adding something a little bit more work can can raise energy. But we can also say sleepiness is like this. This is how it is. Anything can teach us how to be with life as it is. So I have a few minutes for the last one. I knew this was going to happen. But that's all right. So the last one is doubt. 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 This one can be the most paralyzing. This is um, the mind that, that doubts perhaps the teachings, that these teachings don't work, or perhaps doubts the teachers, they don't know what they're talking about, or finally doubt ourselves that we don't have the capacity to do this. So, it's, so doubt is a close neighbor of the inner critic, 
or that harsh judgmental mind that most of us um, know. And um, the reason why it's a protection is it often pulls us back from, from investigating, from being with, with life. And it's the slipperiest. Doubt tells a good story. <laughs> and it's fully convinced of its version of truth. <laughs> so, so we really want to catch it because it, if we don't catch it, it kind of goes under our practice and, and undermines our energy and our enthusiasm. So name it. Oh, yeah. When you hear that voice that says, you don't know, you can't do this. You can say, oh, doubt. Hi, doubt. There's this Buddhist um, um, being called Mara. And uh, Mara likes to, um, he's kind of a trickster type, trickster coyote type. That's a favorable way of maybe... um, saying what he is and so when there's all these stories in the Buddhist scriptures of monks and nuns um, practicing and Mara comes along and Mara's like why are you doing this like you could be having fun like this is this isn't worthwhile and then the monk or the nun will be Mara I see you and when they say Mara I see you Mara loses his power. And the sutras often end that Mara is sitting um, dejectedly scratching the dirt with a stick. So so Mara's like... (laughs) (laughs) So it's the power. It's the power of mindfulness to say, oh yeah, Mara, I see you. Doubt, I see you. I don't have to believe you. Even the Buddha struggled with doubt. In fact, it's said that in the legends that the final um, moments before his full enlightenment, Mara said to him, what right do you have to be here? Doubt, right? And the Buddha touched the earth. That was his gesture. He touched the earth. The earth is my witness. So there's a way that when doubt is plaguing us, maybe we can just touch the earth, feel the earth as our witness. We have a right to be here. We can do this. We can do this journey. We have what we need to do this journey. Five o'clock. Well, I could have said much more, but I hope that I've given you um, some tools and, and, and mostly I hope that I have transmitted some flavor of how you can relate to these um, energies. Get close to them. Get to know them. And slowly they lose their power over you and you develop your confidence in your own ability and your own right to be here.
Let's just sit for a moment before we go to dinner. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.